Welcome to the Leanne McCoy Podcast. This is where we talk about a lot of things, mostly prayer, but also spiritual warfare, parenting adult kids, and what it's like to be a church lady in an increasingly post-Christian world. This is the place where I share interviews with people whose lives have greatly influenced mine. They're authors, ministry leaders, people who've experienced answers to their prayers, and some who are just as baffled as I am that God's ways are not the same as ours but all of whom can gladly shout, no matter what you're facing, God's got this. I'm Leanne McCoy, and this is my podcast. In today's episode, I'm going to share the origins of Thanksgiving and Christmas traditions in hopes of helping you refocus your emotional energy out of the expectations and demands of what the holidays have become and back on how we might live them to the glory of God. If you're dreading the most wonderful time of the year this year, because of what you've lost or never had, take heart. With a bit of perspective, you can redeem the holidays. If you're like me, you're going to be humbled by what you're about to hear. Some of us approach the holiday season with incredible delight. Some of you start talking about it in July. Others of you hardly get your trick-or-treaters off your front porch before you're swapping out your pumpkins with uh, reindeer. And others of us are determined to wait until after Thanksgiving to welcome in Christmas. In fact, uh, Thanksgiving is kind of my... um, front bookend of the holiday season, and um, I I insist on not celebrating Christmas until after Thanksgiving Day. Of course, I love all of the decorating and the things that go on and the, the spirit of the holiday season, but for some people, the holidays can be really, really hard. They can be hard because um, you are inundated with what you think it's supposed to look like. They can be hard because um, seemingly the rest of the world is immersed in Christmas cheer (laughs) and you're not. They can be hard because um, it just uh, not exaggerates, but makes larger in our lives the losses that we've endured or the things that just aren't right, the things that are upside down and inside out and not going well. And it just seems to put a spotlight on those things during the holiday season. And it was really in a setting where this was being challenged um, in my life that I began to think about the holiday season and how we might approach them in a better way, in a way that um, might could redeem the the season and keep it from being so depressing, so discouraging, and um, reclaim it for what it was perhaps even maybe originally in, intended to be. So my thoughts went naturally to looking at what are the origins of Thanksgiving specifically and Christmas. And this is what I found. In fact, I'm reading from a website that I found it was just holidays.net. The Pilgrims and America's First Thanksgiving. The pilgrims who celebrated the first Thanksgiving in America were fleeing religious persecution in their native England. In 1609, a group of pilgrims left England for the religious freedom in Holland, where they lived and prospered. 
After a few years, their children were speaking Dutch and had become attached to the Dutch way of life. This worried the pilgrims. They considered the Dutch frivolous and their ideas a threat to their children's education and morality. So they decided to leave Holland and travel to the New World. Nothing like taking your kid out of public school and putting them in private school that's a whole ocean away, huh? (laughs) Their trip was financed by a group of English investors, the Merchant Adventurers. That's a good name for investors who take you on a trip across the Atlantic Ocean to the New World. It was agreed that the pilgrims would be given passage and supplies in exchange for their working for their backers for seven years. Wow, what an exchange. Like you had to, um, basically you're purchasing with your life, with your time, with the one thing that is most precious. I guess I'm going to give running commentary as I read this. Surely you know when I'm reading and when I'm chatting. Okay, I'm reading again. (laughs) On September 6, 1620, the pilgrims set sail for the New World on a ship called the Mayflower. They sailed from Plymouth, England, and aboard were 44 pilgrims who called themselves the Saints and 66 others whom the pilgrims called the Strangers. Now, isn't that interesting? They got on the boat with 44 of them, the Saints, and 66, the Strangers. This long trip was cold and damp and took 65 days. Since there was the danger of fire on the wooden ship, the food had to be eaten cold. Many passengers became sick, and one person died by the time land was sighted on November 10. If you remember your history, you know that this trip was intended to be started in the summer so that they could arrive in time to be prepared for the winter, but it kept getting put off and put off because of weather and whatnot, and so they did not arrive um, in the New World until November 10. The long trip led to many disagreements between the saints and the strangers. Well, we could have we could have predicted that would come when you call yourself saints and strangers. But after land was sighted, a meeting was held and agreement was worked out called the Mayflower Compact, which guaranteed equality and unified the two groups. They joined together and named themselves the Pilgrims. That's cool. They um they they got together and worked it out after 65 long days on the ocean. Although they had first sighted land off Cape Cod, they did not settle until they arrived at Plymouth, which had been named by Captain John Smith in 1614. It was there that the pilgrims decided to settle. Plymouth offered an excellent harbor. A large brook offered a resource for fish. The pilgrims' biggest concern was attacked by the local Native American Indians, but the Patuxets, I'm not sure I'm saying that right, the Patuxets, it's P-A-T-U-X-E-T-S, were a peaceful group and did not prove to be a threat. The first winter, though, was devastating to the pilgrims. The cold snow and sleet was exceptionally heavy, interfering with the workers as they tried to construct their settlement. March brought warmer weather and the health of the pilgrims improved, but many had died during the cold winter. Listen to this. Of the 110 pilgrims and crew who left England, less than 50 survived the first winter. Can you imagine that? What a small group and how intimate that group must have become to endure all of this together. And more than half of them died the first winter. As you celebrate Thanksgiving with your family, think about the men and women, boys and girls, who sought freedom from religious persecution in America. Think about the many days they went hungry and the nights they shivered in the cold. Imagine how they waited for the ground to thaw so they could bury their loved ones who didn't survive the cold. And ask God to give you a thankful heart as you sleep in your warm bed. 
and eat your fill of turkey and dressing, sweet potato casserole, and pumpkin pie. Come, you thankful people, come. Puts things in perspective, huh? And now for Christmas, let me tell you a little bit about that. The Christians, and I got all this information from the National Geographic website. The Christian Gospels do not mention the date of Jesus' birth, known as the Nativity. They do tell the story of his immaculate conception and humble birth. According to the Gospels, Jesus' mother Mary was a virgin, selected by God to bear his only son. After learning Mary was pregnant, her fiancé, a carpenter named Joseph, wanted to cancel their engagement, but an angel appeared to him in a dream and told him not to be afraid. The newlyweds then made an arduous journey to Bethlehem to participate in a mandatory census. I love how um, the National Geographic is telling this story, which I think is pretty cool. Uh, The influx of visitors to Bethlehem meant that there was no lodging for the expecting couple to rent. After an innkeeper took pity on them and let them sleep in his stable, Mary gave birth to the Son of God. She lay him in a manger as angels sang and a bright star began shining in the sky. On my blog post, I share a really cool little tidbit about this um, and the shepherds and how finding the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes in the manger specifically spoke to the shepherds. So you have to go over to the blog post and, and read that part. Historians disagree on how December 25 became associated with Christmas. However, by AD 336, that's the year 336, Christmas was celebrated by the Christian church in Rome on that day, which coincided with the Roman winter equinox festival of Saturnalia. Saturnalia. Winter festivals had existed worldwide since ancient times, and eventually many of those festivals' traditions became linked with Christmas. For example, the Germanic Solstice Festival of Yule featured banquets and celebration, and Celtic Druids held a two-day solstice festival during which they lit candles and decorated their homes with holly and mistletoe. Over time, Christmas gained popularity and new traditions. In medieval England, Christmas was a 12-day festival involving all kinds of revelry, from plays to wild feasts to pageants celebrating Jesus' birth, music, gift-giving, and decorations all became the norm. This must have been um, the inspiration for the popular Christmas song we know even today called The Twelve Days of Christmas. On the first day of Christmas, my true love gave to me partridge in a pear tree i heard someone say one time that that uh, song actually was a way to share the true christmas message and there's like a symbolic correlation to all of the doctrines of the christian faith i won't go into that but that's what i've heard the most extravagant feasts were celebrated by monarchs such as henry the third whose guests gorged themselves on 600 oxen at one 13th century christmas feast Universities would crown a Christmas king or king of the beans who ruled his peers during the holiday season, and even the most modest celebrations included hymns and carols. I don't know where king of the beans came from. That would be worth looking up because that's kind of unusual. King of the beans. So that you could add that to your Christmas celebration. Um, crown a king of the beans. <laughs> but not everyone relished the celebrations. In 1644, English Puritans banned the festival, prompting rioting and helping stoke England's second civil war. Mm. If you try to do away with Christmas, you might start a war. 
Here's Germany's influence on Christmas. England did not have a monopoly on Christmas. Celebrants all over the world incorporated customs from their wintertime festivals into the holiday, perhaps none more so than the Germans. And I promise you, I had no idea that Germany was so into Christmas until I went and visited there. And every one of their little villages literally looks like a Christmas village all the time. But anyway, Germany is credited for giving birth to one universal symbol, the Christmas tree, which evolved from the pagan tradition of decorating with tree branches. Germans called their version an indoor pine tree adorned with candles and presents, a tannenbaum. The tradition took flight in the 19th century when the British royal family, who had German roots, put up a Christmas tree and started a global trend. Oh, Christmas tree, oh, Christmas tree, how lovely are your branches. <laughs> One of my favorite Christmas traditions we're about to partake on uh, the day after Thanksgiving, and that is to go to the mountains and cut our own tree. It's just one of the funnest things that we do. I do wonder, however, when I realized that they decorated their trees with candles, how on earth or how many of those trees like went up in smoke and how dangerous that was. But Nonetheless, we do have Christmas trees as part of our tradition today, and I love it. In Germany, the originator of many other traditions, such as Advent wreaths, nutcrackers, and Christmas markets, Christmas was shaped by political forces, too. In the 1930s, the Nazis attempted to redefine the holiday as a non-Christian celebration of the Third Reich. Well, aren't we glad that didn't become a permanent thing and that the um, that we won that war so that it would not be how we celebrate Christmas today. Um, the U.S. falls in love with Christmas. Like in England, American Puritans banned Christmas. In Massachusetts in 1659, only lifting the ban in 1681. Well, it sounds like the ban only lasted for 59, 69, 69, 79. 81, like, you know, 23 years, is that? Yeah, 20. In the United States, Christmas was not celebrated with much gusto until the Civil War. Now, isn't that interesting? Which reinforced for many the importance of home and family. In 1870, after the war's end, Congress made Christmas the nation's first federal holiday. Wow. Can you imagine a world where you only had one federal holiday? Meanwhile, as immigrants flooded into the United States in the latter half of the 19th century, they brought their own traditions with them. As Christmas historian William D. Crump writes in the Christmas Encyclopedia, wouldn't that be a cool job to be a Christmas historian? <laughs> I guess William D. Crump already has that job. Anyway, he writes in the Christmas Encyclopedia, this created a kind of Christmas melting pot with assimilation of various cultures into a more uniform and widely celebrated holiday. One of those cultural icons that immigrants brought with them would become a distinctly American celebrity. Are you ready for this? Santa Claus. How St. Nicholas became Santa Claus. One of the most popular figures of a modern Christmas is Santa Claus, the round-bellied, white-bearded patriarch who takes a reindeer-driven sleigh to deliver presents to good children the world over. The character is based on St. Nicholas, a 3rd century Greek bishop who became associated with December gift-giving. Santa came to the U.S. with German and Dutch immigrants in the 18th and 19th centuries. He was popularized in stories by American authors such as Washington Irving and Clement Clark Moore, whose poem, A Visit from St. Nicholas, is perhaps better known by its opening words, "'Twas the night before Christmas." 
Santa's iconic look was propagated by illustrator Thomas Nast, who drew on European folktales to create a Santa whose popularity soon spread around the globe. In 1890, merchant James Edgar started an indelible custom when he dressed as Santa and greeted children in the aisles of his Brockton, Massachusetts department store. Particularly in the U.S., the idea took off. Nothing like a good old Santa Claus to stir up the spirit of um, materialism (laughs) in America. The origins of other Christmas, wait, I have to tell you this one thing, and there is a blog post on my Leanne McCoy website that you can go and look at, but one of my childhood Christmas memories is going to visit Santa at the, um, I think it was the Riches department store in a department, in a shopping center in Atlanta, where they had a pink pig, a little train that you could ride at the same time you go visit Santa, you get to ride on the pink pig little train. And so somehow for me, going and visiting Santa makes me think of a pink pig. (laughs) Strange how these um, traditions take off. Well, here's the origins of other Christmas customs. Light has always been a part of winter festivals with their signature long, dark nights. Electric Christmas lights are a modern spinoff of the old-fashioned candles that Germans placed on their trees. Thomas Edison, inventor of the light bulb, is credited as the inventor of the first strand of lights. In 1882, his business partner, Edward Johnson, created the first Christmas tree illuminated with colored lights. Wouldn't Thomas Edison love to come back today and see how that has taken off (laughs) in our Christmas celebrations? American innovation also shaped the always popular tradition of exchanging gifts on Christmas. In the 20th century, commercial gift wrap replaced brown paper wrapping when Raleigh B. Hall, whose brother had founded Hallmark Cards, used stylized French envelope liners after running out of tissue paper at his store. Hallmark had a hand in the modern Christmas card, too. Um, Riffing on the late 19th century small printed cardboard cards to create a larger one with a book-like format perfect for personalized sentiments. Gifts, cards, and decorations are all well and good, but for many, Christmas isn't complete without their favorite foods. Gingerbread houses gained Christmas popularity in the early 19th century after the Brothers Grimm published Hansel and Gretel, in which two children are kidnapped by a witch who lives in a house with walls made of gingerbread and other sweets. From fruit, I had no idea that Hansel and Gretel, I thought the gingerbread house came first, and then the Brothers Grimm wrote Hansel and Gretel. But isn't that interesting that Hansel and Gretel came first? I always thought that was a pretty creepy um, fairy tale, to tell you the truth. In fact, most of the fairy tales are very creepy, if you think about it. Okay, moving on. From fruitcake to wassail punch, each culture has its own spin on what's considered Christmas food. An increasingly secular holiday. Though Christmas has religious origins, it's become a secular and increasingly commercialized holiday. That's sparked concern for centuries, says historian Lisa Jacobson. People have complained about the excessive commercialization of Christmas ever since its modern incarnation in the mid-19th century. She tells the University of California, Santa Barbara's The Current, I don't think that ambivalence has ever entirely disappeared. Those who fear the holiday has strayed from its religious roots have a point. In 2019, more than 9 in 10 Americans polled by Gallup say they celebrate Christmas, but just 35% say they saw the holiday as strongly religious. 
But with its mismatch of pagan and religious traditions, the holiday season offers something, whether holy or not, for everyone who celebrates it. That was um, just excerpts from that National Geographic article. And I thought it was very interesting to think about what we celebrate today and really how um, how it has become very, very, very different than what it was originally. And somehow in my way of thinking, I feel like we can not only survive, but also thrive during the, during the holiday season if we kind of become more purist with it, if we get back to what is at the root of the holidays, what is the real meaning of it? And that's then where I, I go in this is that the holidays as we know, and some kind times can dread them to be, might not be at all what God had in mind when he designed them. For our Christian faith, the origin of holidays in general is found in the Old Testament book of Leviticus in chapter 23. If you take time to read Leviticus 23, and I encourage you to do so, you will read about all of the different holidays that the Lord was establishing for his people as they were becoming a nation. In fact, the Lord, I love it. He gave them um, more than one federal holiday um, really before they even made it into the barely got their feet wet in the promised land. He already had established all of these festivals that were very important for the people. You see, my friends, the origins of the holidays for God's children are very, um, were, um, very purposeful. All kinds of holy days are described in Leviticus 23 and specific instructions on how to celebrate each one. Our God is a God of celebration. He loves a great party. Don't you remember Jesus's um, parable of the prodigal son? What did the father do when his son returned home? He gave him a great big party. In fact, Jesus's first miracle was to turn water into wine at a wedding celebration. And so um, we see over and over the celebratory nature of God. Scripture even teaches that even now Jesus is preparing a feast, a, a wedding feast for all of us in that day when this world comes to an end and we're all collected together to live forever with him. And for those of you who have hosted weddings this year, you know what a celebration that is and what kind of preparation it requires. God loves to party. And since he's the one who made us, who better to show us how to party best? So when I went to Leviticus 23, this is what I found. The first of the parties God established for his people was to come once every seven days. What about that? One party a week. And he called this one the Sabbath. There are six days when you may work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath rest, a day of sacred assembly. You're not to do any work. Wherever you live, it is a Sabbath to the Lord. Huh. God initiated a holy day to come once a week, and he told us what we must do to experience his parties. Assemble, of course, get together with others. It's hard to party alone and rest. What? Rest? You mean we get together and rest? <laughs> Then he reminded us the holy days, this one that comes once a week and all the others, they belong to the Lord. Now that might be worth saying out loud. If you're listening to my podcast and you're alone or with people, it doesn't matter. Just say this. The holidays belong to the Lord. The holidays belong to the Lord. The holidays belong to the Lord. They don't belong to me. They don't belong to my kids. They don't belong to this world. 
The holidays belong to the Lord. After God set aside the Sabbath, he appointed several feasts. We have one major feast each year. We call this feast Thanksgiving. And like Thanksgiving, God's feasts were hosted to celebrate what the Lord had done. The feast included the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the First Fruits, the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles, which was a big camping trip for the Israelites. All of these feasts involved assembling together, worshiping God, and no work. Because the no work clause was foreign to my holiday experience, I decided to do a scholarly study on it. I counted 15 times in Leviticus 23 that God told the Israelites to do no regular work. He said, you're not to do any work, verse 3. Do no regular work, verses 7, 8, 21, 25, 28, 35, and 36. You are to have a day of rest, verse 24 and 39. And in case you're like me, and you might have missed one of the primary rules of the holy days, he said this, I will destroy from among his people anyone who does any work on that day. You shall do no work at all, Leviticus 23, 30, and 31. Huh, 15 times God said, don't work on the holidays. I was convicted. In fact, for holiday overachievers like me, God brought this significant phrase out of those verses. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come wherever you live. That means it's still his rule and his expectation of his children today, even if we do live thousands of years and miles from those who first received the instructions. It, the holiday, is a Sabbath of rest for you. It's a day or several days set aside for you and me. And you must deny yourselves. Wait, what? That's Leviticus 23, 32. Did you catch that phrase? In order for me to celebrate the holidays, the way the creator of my holidays intended for me to experience them, I must deny myself. Does that mean that when I refuse to stop working, I am indulging myself? To worship what you do, do more than you worship God is to participate in idol worship. Think about that today. So here's the deal. Our holidays are holy days. They are days to set aside, relax, gather with friends and family, and not work and reflect on God's goodness, his faithfulness, his kindness, his generosity, his reliability, his presence. Now, I'm going to say this for all you Marthas out there. You're thinking, who's going to what are we going to eat on Christmas if I don't prepare the meal? (laughs) What are we going to have on Thanksgiving if I don't make something? There is some work involved in celebrating the holidays, but what I think the message is for us today, or maybe I should say the translation is, whatever work we're doing, like let it be a celebration. The minute it becomes a chore, it's too much. So if it becomes a chore after you hang that wreath on your front door with a great big bow on it, let that wreath on the front door be enough. Don't worry about the garland that has to come out of the attic and be twisty tied to your banister. But if it's great joy and you're loving it, then hang that garland for goodness sake. Put the mistletoe up and deck the halls with boughs of holly. (laughs) You know what I mean? You know when it's begun to be too much and you know when it gets to be a chore and not an act of worship. So the question is not, how am I going to survive my holidays? But rather, how am I going to worship and honor God during these days? Because don't forget, the holidays belong to the Lord. 
The minute it becomes more about you and yours, or decorations, or food, or any number of things that we've made the holidays into, we need to stop and reset. But for the practical side of us, here are five things that we can do to make the most of our holidays this year. One, lower your expectations. Don't expect anything, especially out of your children if they're adults or even if they're small. Of course, young children, if you can, get yourself where young children are. Um, it or adopt some, find some young children that are children of a single mom who are struggling and you become their holiday home, whatever you have to do, because children are so great on the holidays, but simply lower your expectations. Number two, consider doing things differently than you did the year before. If you've had an especially difficult year and it just breaks your heart to consider continuing your holidays in the same traditions that you've always done it, then consider doing something different. Avoid social media. Number three is avoid social media, Facebook and Instagram. I mean, seriously, take your time this holiday season to live face to face with the people you're with and stop trying to stage your house and your life so that others will be impressed with it. Number four, focus on someone who's lonely. It's really not that hard to find lonely people on the holidays. Um, and you can find them. And when you find lonely people, ask God to bring somebody your way. Just um, serve them and stop feeling sorry for yourself. And then number five is be grateful. Simply determine right here, right now, that no matter what you're going, no matter what, you are going to cultivate an attitude of gratitude. Let me see if I can bring this um, conversation to an end. Think about it this way. The first Thanksgiving wasn't in November, the first year the Pilgrims landed. It was actually held after they'd survived that first winter that wiped out over half their community and they harvested their first crops. The Pilgrims did have a feast in 1621 after their first harvest, and it is this feast which people often refer to as the first Thanksgiving. This feast was never repeated, though, so it can't be called the beginning of a tradition, nor was it termed by the colonists or pilgrims a Thanksgiving feast. In fact, to these devoutly religious people, a day of Thanksgiving was a day of prayer and fasting and would have been held any time that they felt an extra day of thanks was called for. Isn't that funny? Usually when I'm fasting, I'm asking for something, not thanking God for what he's already done. <laughs> that'll, that'll make you pause for a minute and say, huh. Imagine if we were to gather the whole family together on Thanksgiving Day and just fast and pray. Hmm. I'm not, I'm not sure how many people would make it over the river and through the woods for that. <laughs> but anyway, nevertheless, the 1621 feast has become a model that we think of for our own Thanksgiving celebration, and we do know something of the truth about it. We can assume, for example, that the feast, the harvest feast, was eaten outside based on the fact that the colonists didn't have a building large enough to accommodate all the people who came. Native people were definitely among the invited guests, and it's possible, even probable, that they um, roasted turkey and had pumpkin in some form, and it gets better. This is the way the feast was described in a firsthand account, presumably by a leader of the colony, Edward Winslow, as it appears in Mort's Relation. I don't know. I guess that's the book it comes in. Okay, now you got to get um, get your, your ears ready to hear this in the 17th century verbiage, okay? Here's what Edward said about the first Thanksgiving feast. Our harvest being gotten in, our governor sent four men on fowling. 
that so we might after a special manner rejoice together after we had gathered the fruit of our labors. They four in one day killed as much fowl as, with a little help beside, served the company almost a week, at which time, amongst other recreations, we exercised our arms. Now, I don't know if they meant that they did, you know, circle exercises with their arms or if they shot their guns. Probably they were shooting their guns. I don't know. Many of the Indians coming amongst us and among the rest, their greatest king, Masasuit, with some 90 men whom for three days we entertained and feasted. And they went out and killed five deer, which they brought to the plantation and bestowed on our governor and upon the captain and others. And although it be not always so plentiful as it was this time with us, yet by the goodness of God, we are so far from want that we often wish you partakers of our plenty. Isn't that great? And no, there were like 90 of the, they called them Indians and um, the native people. And there were only 60 pilgrims left when this happened. From this, and, and that's the end of his uh, telling of the first Thanksgiving. <laughs> From this, we know that the feast went on for three days, including 90, quote, Indians, and the food was plentiful. In addition to the venison provided by the Indians, there was enough wild fowl to supply the village for a week. The fowl would have included ducks, geese, turkeys, and even swans. You know what? I wouldn't mind eating a swan if it tasted any good because they are mean. There was one day we went to the uh, a pond and we were kind of walking toward a swan. It was just so beautiful and regal looking. And that thing started coming after my granddaughter. And ever since then, I've not, I've not appreciated swans nearly so much. But back to our Thanksgiving story. Isn't that great? Somehow these pilgrims, a ragtag group of saints and strangers, chose to let go of their unfulfilled expectations and release their resentment over the losses they suffered. Instead, they chose to celebrate the goodness of God that allowed them to plant seeds and harvest food. They feasted with the Native Americans and for a few days forgot their pain and simply lived satisfied with what they had. You know what, my friends? You're going to make it through these holidays, and so am I. You know how? By choosing to bow down under the mighty hand of God and receive whatever he gives you with humble gratitude. This year has perhaps been hard for you. You may have suffered losses that you would say to me are unimaginable. Your heart may be so heavy, you can hardly haul it around every day. And the Christmas carols might make you sick at your stomach. But you can decide right here and right now that the holidays belong to the Lord. And you can determine that no matter what, you will bow down under the mighty hand of God and receive from him whatever it is that he has chosen to give to you. I want to close with this prayer, this very challenging prayer that Jerry Bridges wrote. Lord, I am willing to receive what you give, to lack what you withhold, to relinquish what you take, to suffer what you inflict, to be what you require. Amen. As always, my friends, please share this podcast with anyone you know who might be encouraged by it. 
I also wrote a blog post that's similar to the podcast that you might enjoy reading. It's called When the Holidays Threaten to Hurt You, and you can find it on my leannemccoy.com website. Also, if you're looking for a great Christmas gift idea for a sister, an aunt, a mom, a friend, any woman in your life, we've put together a Trust Him More gift box. In it, you get a beautiful Trust Him More t-shirt and journal, a copy of my book, A Woman's Guide to Hearing God's Voice, autographed, a God's Got This coffee mug filled with my favorite herbal tea, scented soap, and a personal note from me. You can go to either of my websites, leannemccoy.com or prayerclinic.com to learn more and to order this gift. Um, Let's make these holidays holy. I pray in people.